Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of your women. That is good. We were actually talking about uh, a new business venture. Let me know what you think about this. Okay. So they're called carbon onset credits. <laughs> so if you feel like you're conserving too much carbon accidentally, you can buy credits uh, somewhere around, somewhere else in the world from people who are going to uh, keep their car running for an extra 10 minutes or yeah, you know, blast go. the air conditioner, keep the vacuum cleaner running, you know, anything you can do to, to get more carbon into the air. I think you're about to create a dangerous uh, <laughs> app. <laughs> we could just like lie about it and just say, just get people's money. You know, yeah, like, that's a good idea. <laughs> just lie. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> just lie, dude. We'll get, I mean, that's what they all do over there. Like, yeah, don't worry. We'll get, we'll get crypto celebrities to like promote it and say, oh, oh yeah. in fact, yeah, if it could be on the blockchain where it's carbon onset credits. We'll bundle it with like the coal rollers. Yeah. There we go. I think yeah. that's, basi- that's basically. I want, an, I want an I want an F one fifty with like a Cummins in it that <laughs> generates Bitcoin every time I roll coal. <laughs> oh, my oh my god, that's great. <laughs> Listen to the Space Commune podcast. Today we have on Emmett Penny, who is the editor-in-chief of Grid Brief, a contributing editor to Compact Magazine, and the host of the Nuclear Barbarians podcast. Emmett, welcome. Hey, good to be back, guys. How's it going? Good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Not like Steve. I didn't ask you that like 10 minutes before. That's basically what Bitcoin is, is like just dead energy that was burned at some point. That's, that's where the value comes from pretty much. Is yeah. Like it required energy to do the transaction and that's, that's what makes it valuable. Well, that's what, that's like what the metaverse is, you know, people say, Oh, we'll work from home and live in the metaverse and reduce my footprint. But it's like all these things require servers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a massive amount. Yeah, not, not using energy, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like, in, like it was close to embodying electricity as you can get, I guess, with some of that stuff. I mean, I don't know, like, a lot of this stuff is just a scam. A lot of it's blowing up right now. Um, like, I don't think ESG is going away, but it's definitely and having- a, What is a, ESG again? So it's like um, economic social governance. That's right, the big right. thing that green NGOs, certain actors yeah. do to like pressure major investors uh, to divest from fossil fuels. It, and it's big in time too. I mean, it's like a Salesforce- Cat, you know, all the big banks are like, are doing it. You know, it's it's not just the Davos agenda. Yeah, I feel like it's coming yeah. from on high now instead of yeah, well, it's ostensibly right? from below. Because Vanguard was just like, yeah, we're not doing that. I mean, they have their own net zero goals and they invest in some net zero mm-hmm. companies or whatever, but they were like, we are not pulling money out of coal and fucking over the people who have their pensions invested in us. They're like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and uh, Stuart Kirk over at HSBC gave this great talk. I encourage everybody to watch it where he 
is just like, yeah, all the bankers are overestimating climate risk to like fluff these portfolios and scare mm-hmm. everyone. And no one invests in climate adaptation. Fossil fuel isn't going anywhere for a while. Everyone should just get fucking real. And the whole speech was internally vetted. And then after he gave the talk, he was like immediately suspended. Nice. Wow. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's the, the criticism of the Green New Deal is that it's it's all it's all fluff because it's mm-hmm. you're in we're pumping all this money into an at to assets like solar panels that are are not going to have the, the commensurate value that other things no. that you could invest in in the material world would would have over a long period of time. Yeah, no way. I mean, they're built with fossil fuels like yeah. that's that's it. That's the game. That's the whole right. game right there. You know, you can't make a solar panel with a solar panel. Can't make a wind turbine with wind turbine. Yeah, and you can't control how those things operate because the fuel is out of our control. You know, the whole they call them. Yeah, they're renewable. not dispatchable. Yeah. Right. Right. They call them renewable. I think the branding of renewables, you know, obviously in their favor because it's renewable, but not when you need it. It's like. It, it's right. It, no, they, call it a, they call it a resource that's renewable because there's no end in sight to sun and wind, yeah. but also you literally can't take it when you need it. <laughs> so yeah. it's no, like, exactly. Well, th- you know, that's why I wish that like Alex Epstein's thing of calling them unreliables didn't sound as much like a daily wire dad rework <laughs> as it does because it's true. You know, like I love Alex, like, you know, uh, he and our boys, but like, um, I don't think that's going to take off anytime soon. Yeah, probably not. Unreliables. Well, yeah. And part of the problem too, is that there's a, such a large investment initially to to build the solar panels and to deploy them and all that stuff. But then after that, there's no ongoing value uh, in terms of jobs being created. And I think, you know, if, if all the solutions require burning fossil fuels to make cement and make materials and whatnot, at least go for the one that will create long-term jobs in communities like, you know, like plants. I mean, I think you said it, you said it once too uh, on our podcast and on the video Marxism and energy uh, talking about how in order to be resilient to climate change, we're going to need a shitload of cement. Yeah. You know, that's right. So like to build the kinds of, of infrastructure like flood walls or uh, mm-hmm. power plants or, you know, in that places like Africa, like a lot, they have a lot of things they need to build to even be able to survive climate Cooling change towers, or just the, or just the climate know. as it is now. Yeah. 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 yeah well, I mean, it's a, uh, I think that's what's so criminal about the ESG stuff because, you know, BlackRock has uh, definitely pulled the card of various other entities who are trying to invest in coal in the developing world, you know, um, and stuff like that. It just really hamstrings these countries that are trying to get like any energy reliability into uh, their lives. And I mean, that's going to come from fossil fuel, uh, and like hydro, which is of course concrete intensive, um, and nuclear, which also needs concrete. So, you know, it's just really brutal. It's uh, very frustrating to watch. Yeah, yeah, it it truly is. Well, and you know, I also thought of this other thing where yeah, it, this idea that um, I think a lot of people are hung up, uh, especially in like sort of the pro nuclear you know, energy, what I should say is energy realist um, mm-hmm. <laughs> sector is this idea that like, um, 
there's all these different types of energy production, like renewables, nuclear, uh, gas, oil, et cetera, coal. Um, and that they're, they're, they all have their pluses and minuses and that they can all be sort of mixed and matched as, mm-hmm. as however we want, um, which kind of ignores, it seems like people conveniently ignore the reality that um, these things just can't, you can't just mix and match them however you want. And that, you know, we can all win. All the solar people can have a little bit of theirs and the nuclear people mm-hmm. can have a little bit of theirs. And it doesn't have to be a fight between the two. You know, I hear a lot of them say, the, the ideologues say, oh, it doesn't have to be a fight between the two. But um, you stated this sort of in your, one of your recent uh, articles that it, that it is, it has to be a fight. It's not a debate. Yeah. And, and I, agree with this. And I think that most people who know technically how it works um, would agree because what what ends up happening is the way the grid operates, the way energy is produced is that renewables and, and, you know, credit to to Meredith, I think she's, she's put this, this out there a lot is that, is that renewables actually squeeze out nuclear. So it's not like they're just New, they're just these neutral energy sources that can all work together in one big happy family that one of these sources actually is crowding out the other. Yeah, to so we saw that detriment. just happen in, yeah, we just saw that just happen in Michigan, right? So Palisades shut down 10 days early. Um, mm. They had some pretty standard fuel rod problems, like nothing to freak out about. They were just supposed to close at the end of May and they shut down 10 days early. Because why rework some of the whatever they were working on if you're just going to shut down in a little over a week? But the reason Palisades closed is because it got edged out of MISO, the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator, which is the electricity spot market that stretches from like the you know northern border of Minnesota down to the bottom of Louisiana. Um, it shut off the same day NERC put out a report that's like, yeah, MISO is going to have rolling blackouts this summer probably. Hmm. Wow. And that's because uh, renewables and natural gas have this very cozy relationship with each other that mm-hmm. both the American Petroleum Institute and solar and wind organizations are quite proud of, which is that they can bid into the spot market, renewables can, way below market rate uh, because of subsidies. So sometimes in the negatives and uh, price out more reliable power plants like nuclear. And then when the renewable shut off, uh, only gas can show up in time to save it. And that's really great if the price of natural gas stays low. But we have created such, uh, the large parts of the grid now are so reliant on natural gas that the price of electricity more or less follows the price of natural gas. So if we're going to export a lot of LNG to Europe yeah. uh, as it tries to wean itself on Russian fossil fuels, I mean, you know, like it, that's going to have effects on supply. It's going to create all sorts of problems that you're going to feel in your electricity bill, basically. And yeah. that's the problem. With, one of the problems with the RTO structure, I should have a piece coming out in Compact soon that's sort of like um, 2000 words that should sort of be like a little capsule history of the grid that mm-hmm. goes into some of the problems with places like MISO and their capacity auctions and stuff like that. So yeah, what we really need is- Keep an eye on my Twitter for that to come out. 
Excellent. Yeah, what we really need is more people to, who can really boil this down to simple terms because the general public, like, they understand that things are fucked, but they, like, don't know the technical stuff behind it. So they're sort of, you know... Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, totally. Was... There, there were Republican ads that were run politicizing FERC. This is the first time this has ever happened. Um, and they were run in some battleground states recently. Uh, sort of priming people for the midterms and the, the ads were like, what the, what the FERC? And <laughs> the only way that they could sort of communicate that FERC was hitting people's wallets was by showing a picture of like a gas pump at a gas station <laughs> next to quote unquote Biden's bureaucrats. Yeah. <laughs> now look, like FERC doesn't have anything to do with the price of the pump. Like they mm. don't have, like they don't have jurisdiction over refineries. They aren't doing that, you know. Uh, so it's a shame. But uh, at the same time, there's no like quick like thing you could have where you're like, and this is why FERC is part of the problem. It is in the research that I've been doing, because I have, I wrote that long piece for American Affairs and they asked for another one that's like an expanded history of the grid and like why it's fucked, right, fucked up right now. So I've been working on that. And doing all of the stuff after re-regulation is a huge pain in the ass. Like it is like lapidary sediments of arcane rules that it's not even clear that most electricity traders fully understand mm. when they go to try to make their money in the market. Mm. It is a disaster on all fronts, you know, and it is seemingly it's handed more power over to the federal government in the form of FERC. And FERC has members with its own ideologies you know like right now we have Allison Clements I was at a consumer liaisons group meeting on zoom with her for ISO New England the independent system operator out there late last year and she said something very worrying she was like you know FERC's mandate is this it's constrained we can't tell people what to do or blah 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 but huge caveat climate change changes everything hmm. And I'm like, okay, so <laughs> what does that imply? Yeah. You know? And then the other part of it is like, you have guys like, um, what's his name? Richard Glick, Rich Glick, who is the head of FERC right now. And he just got re-upped by Biden. He used to work for Iberdola, which is now Avangrid, which is a huge renewables titan. Now we mm. can expect some sort of revolving door just because you want people that are familiar enough with the thing they're regulating that they can make coherent decisions about it. But it makes me really sort of, you know, do the shifty eyed dog from the Simpsons look about it. Yeah. Like it just doesn't <laughs> smell right. Yeah. And you know, you have guys in there uh, like Danley is his last name. Who's like, look, I think even if you built all the transmission in the world, this might not work and we shouldn't play games mm -hmm. yeah. with our grid. Like this is essential infrastructure and we can't just be out here like fucking freestyling. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think the, the biggest hold that we're seeing here in upstate New York is that uh, all these plans, at least in the New York state context and NY ISO context, all the plans are originating from NGOs based in New York City and supported by a few liberal enclaves like our town, Kingston or Ithaca, Buffalo a little bit. Uh, none of there's no support. There's no discussion there's no origination with the people where the shit's actually going to be built. Yep. And that is, to me, that's like the biggest hole in all of this is that like we're the plan hinges 
on these populations of people who have different values and live a different reality than somebody sitting in a uh, you know an environmental NGO office in New York City. Well, and that, and that goes back to sort of what I was hinting at before is this dishonesty within the debate, this fight, this political fight. The, the pro-renewable team um, likes to paint it as if they're opposed to the fossil fuel industry, like that's their enemy when it's absolutely not. I mean, you know, just talking to you, talking to anybody who kind of just knows like, no, those, right. those two types of energy work hand in hand. So oh, for these, yeah. so just real quick to add into that yeah. just really quickly, because I think this is powerful at that same consumer liaisons group that uh, Clements was at, there was a guy from America, the American Petroleum Institute who used to be an ISO worker out in New England, who did a whole presentation that was basically like, look how awesome it is that natural gas and renewables kick the shit out of nuclear and coal. Huh. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> they just say it out loud, huh? Yeah. He was just like, yeah, this rules. This is obviously right. great. Like he was uh. I yeah. screen capped the slide wow. and put it in my most recent thing because I was just like, well, he, there he is saying it. He referred yeah. to older, dirtier, inefficient plants, which I guess you could say for coal, but you can't really say that for nuclear. Right. Yeah. Natural gas replacing coal is you know, fine by my book, but uh, natural gas replacing nuclear is unacceptable. Look, that's yeah, ridiculous. And- and look, like that's what's crazy, right? So like the TVA was thinking about reducing its coal portfolio even more by onboarding more natural gas. Guess who's upset about, about that? The Greens. Hmm. It's just like, well, this would be an effective way to reduce, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. TVA's emissions. Like that's a that's a reasonable plan. They also wanted to right. build more nuclear. They weren't happy with that. And now all these green groups are crying that the Senate isn't approving any of Biden's appointees who aren't from the area that the TVA serves, they have expertise in things like environmental justice, whatever the fuck that means, <laughs> you know, and like climate policy or whatever, but don't really have any brass tack experience in like managing a public resource like the TVA, yeah. right? So, oh, and some of the some of them are experts in like uh, decentralization of the grid, mm. you know? And I'm like, why would the TVA ever want somebody who's gonna do that? Mm-hmm. running it it's a centralized entity even if it's spread yeah. out over a vast area so yeah i mean the calls coming from inside the house with some of this shit yeah mm-hmm. yeah and I, I would argue too that there's a, a knowingness maybe a front on the higher levels that they know that these things are so land intensive and there's so many barriers mm-hmm. to building these things and that ultimately the the malthusian aspects of this stuff become relevant when you realize that there's not actually a plan to increase the amount of energy that we produce and the amount of reliable energy. There's no plan to keep energy affordable Mm -hmm. and they know that there's no way they're going to be able to do it. And they're just, they're making, they're going to make the grid more unreliable and more precarious for people. And that's where like, you know, the, the idea of, uh, you know, growth or reindustrialization or bringing jobs back, to Americans uh, becomes more and more far-fetched because there's no actual plan to power, you know, to power new industry or to yeah. uh, keep people, literally keep people alive with like air conditioning and heat. Yeah, it's it's ultimate. Oh, yeah. They want to paint it as like the oh the greedy oil companies. So yeah. it's all about greed and the capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. The level above that is like no, really, what it's about is actually <laughs> this Malthusian 
you know, let's reduce energy consumption and with it, you know, population and our footprint on the earth. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, it's interesting. I was, um, who's that guy? He's on the right. I think he's friends with Shu, Aaron McIntyre. Okay. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. I was following him on Twitter and he, and he just had this great phrase to sort of describe something where he's just like, look, this isn't hypocrisy. It's hierarchy. Hmm. And I was just like, yeah, that's really it. Hmm. <laughs> you know, like yeah. the, the, it doesn't matter that they're hypocrites because what they're doing is they're installing a hierarchy where they're like, I get this and you don't. Yeah. So renewables gets to eat up all the land. You don't get shit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, really, they're not being hypocritical. That is that's, hierarchy. You know, that's a really, that's actually a brilliant way to put it because the higher up you go on the hierarchy, the less hypocritical, it's almost like the people at the bottom who, whose interests align more with like what we're saying, they kind of have to be hypocritical to justify all the stuff that contradicts yeah. itself. It's like, what, you have to do mental gymnastics right. to kind of ignore reality. Whereas higher, the higher up, on the hierarchy you go, it's like, no, actually, this is all very consistent for right. these people. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, on Twitter today, I mean, I was experiencing this, that, uh, you know, some re- renewable bill didn't, didn't pass just now in New York state and yeah, that's right. it didn't have any support from unions. That one, huh? It was just all NGOs that supported it and DSA and a teachers people. Union. And a teacher's and a, union. It was yeah, union-backed. It was union-backed, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah. So basically what they all want to say is that the unions are too reactionary to to not lead the way on this bill and it's like yeah because the unions actually have a constituency that they're accountable Mm -hmm. to and they have to deliver uh they have to weigh all kinds of factors in delivering results to this constituency and that is why they cannot back this bill uh and so like the ngos get to be maximalists because ultimately their constituency is their donors and foundations that fund them uh, I forget, I forget where I'm going with that. No, but, no, no. Well, I, mean, I just yeah. want to add real quick to that. So yeah. I think sometime last year or the year before, cause this, this bill, whatever it's called, I've been following people that really want the tea on this need to follow Fred Stafford on Twitter. Yeah. Right. Like that's just the, he's just the goat. He's goaded. You know, um, but I remember the, like the DSA in New York has like a little podcast or whatever. And I think they even oh, like, put they? it out on public uh, radio and some like fucking union guy that works for Con Ed called in and he's basically <laughs> like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. For my, and if you come for my pension, I'm going to end you. <laughs> oh, my oh my God. God that's beast. That's yeah, awesome. Great. And he's just like, I'm not debating. Me, I'm just saying. And then he hung up. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's fucking. Well, he sounds very reactionary, and he needs to debutikoize. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, need to debutikoize that fucking pension. He needs to be. Oh he needs God, to be reeducated right. because he's, uh, you know, he's obviously a privileged settler living in the imperial. That's right, K- a white American KKK settler. <laughs> yeah, just to right. decolonize his pension. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's just ton. <laughs> there's tons of that, you know. Like that's the. It sucks, right? Because I want to say, I want to say, like, I really believe in public infrastructure and all of these things. And I do at some like higher theoretical level. But I think like most of us who are interested in that need to be really honest with ourselves and admit that the people that would end up running that right now would be the people that want to like destroy it. Yeah, you know, like, like I said, just the thing I was talking about with the TVA earlier, Mm. like that is 
those are the people that are going to get into the TVA and then start prying it apart because hmm. it's oppressive that it has this structure. I mean, you can kind of see the green groups that are upset about this are also sort of supporting things that are like, hey, the TVA shouldn't have monopoly share of its wires. So it should have to ha transfer the electricity from these like small merchant renewables things, hmm. basically like prying apart the TVA's power, public power, over its domain and that's a real problem yeah like the people that are on the left like aren't interested in the new deal idea right not really yeah like mm -hmm. the ones that have power the ones that actually decide how things go they're part of these ngos you guys have already said that well and they've abandoned the, the roosevelt kennedy coalition for something right. else they've totally, yeah. because by the way that coalition changes after the great society program Right. Like the, the thing that happened yeah. in the 60s and 70s is the downgrading of labor and the upgrading of race. Right. Well, it's like a PMC lump in an alliance that happens and they they walk away. The unions become the right basically. Persona non grata. Working class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the people who are like, I just want this to work on the left and I want people on the left to agree with me. Mm -hmm. I used to think that way, too. Now I've taken the black pill, which is <laughs> we're in industrial decline and I don't know what to do to solve it. Like, I don't yeah. know, like if we just take a look at who's in power, who's likely to be in power and who has interests over stewarding something like the grid, right? So Biden just invoked the Defense Production Act to boost domestic solar by, guess what? suppressing any new possible tariffs on South Asian solar right. for the next 24 right. months. That there was supposed to be no a killer. Way... Those tariffs are supposed to be a killer because they- And they have been, yeah. and they have right. been. Uh, and there's no way that domestic solar is going to be able to compete with that in 24 months. Like suddenly we're just going to have a solar panel industry. Like mm -hmm. what are we talking about here? Right. So the executive branch is willing to step in for its guys in that way and continue to fragilize the grid. Every single green NGO is going to prefer that and put their political power towards that rather than do anything else, like try to figure out how to re-regulate nuclear or whatever. Never gonna happen for them, yeah. most of them, right? You might get them to stop shutting nuclear down. You might get that, maybe, yeah. far chance, right? Okay. And now if we take a look at like the coal guys know what's over for them, they're not even really fighting anymore. We've got like, I don't know, a bunch of gigs of coal shutting off in the next decade. I think we're maybe losing nine gigs this year, mm. right? Mm. And then you want to add in like, is the API really going to say shit about this? Like if people keep buying gas plants? No, not really. And the ICOs don't, the ISOs don't make policy. They take policy. So who's, who's going to step in and, and by what authority, right? Like they would have to get in a fight with FERC. Like to get this fixed, you would have to have an activist White House that is very, very aware of the situation and hires people who know enough about it and who have come up with the institutions that allows them to know enough about it to effectively reform it. That's really difficult. Yeah. Right. And well, I'm not trying to do this to bum anybody out. I'm just trying yeah. to say, like, this is the terrain that we're yeah. looking at. Right. 
And that's a difficult power map to right. navigate. When I look when I look at what's happened here, you know, we're in the birthplace of the modern environmental movement in the Mid Hudson Valley, and the way I look at it is that it took 50 years for this stuff to really get to this point, and it's going to take 50 years to get out That's of it. Right. There's no like 10 year, five year, 10 year plan for this stuff. It's going to take 50 years of mm -hmm. advancing advancing some ideas now and building up a new set of values for people. And then it's going to take like decades after that to actually get new generations of people into power that can rebuild our, our country, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically, like, we would be lucky to have an old style national bourgeois elite. Yeah. We would be well, lucky to have that. <clears throat> You yeah, who are the Kennedy I mean, style? Like this is yeah. just going to be the way it is because it has to be, and it's and for the common right, good. Right. The common good. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's like isn't that what like uh, Curtis Yarvin is saying now? Like that we, I, I, dude, I have no idea what that guy is saying. <laughs> is that, as is far that, as I know, he's like a monarchist. I don't get it. What, well, yeah, like, I think he was saying that like a, we need a we need Meghan Markle to I, basically like get the, the <laughs> national bourgeois in line or something I think like that. What, I think what. Like, Emmett is saying what I have the way I'm taking it is that it's more like there's that lower level capitalists who actually still want yeah. growth and industry. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that's kind of what we need to leverage at this I, point. I agree with that. And yeah. it's not, yeah. it's mostly, uh, I mean, I don't know, the Democrats are in power and the, the left, th this horrible Malthusian left is in power. And it is mostly the Democrats that are doing this shit. There are some like old school Democrats though, that do actually want growth. It, but it doesn't have, it doesn't have to be limited to one party or the other. I would say to people like, yeah. look for people right. who are rational, who want growth, who want industry. That's, those are the kind of political people that we want to put our effort yeah. behind. Um, yeah, yeah, like if, if you're a communist, 100%. you're always you're always getting a raw deal at the ballot box. It's just built like that, <laughs> you know. Like yeah. that's just straight up. The trade offs are not good, you know. And a lot of this is highly imperfect, you know. Like I have a huge soft spot for Joe Manchin. Like on yeah, one right, hand, right. he like absolutely enraged, and the rest of the party hates things. him. <laughs> yeah, but then on the other hand, like he knows, like I, because it's my job, I now like watch him do his hearings on energy mm. and we're like, the Senate was structured so that committees like that would create senators with expertise who could try and hold accountable the various bureaucracies that the federal government needed to create in order to perpetuate itself. He is one of the few, along with his compatriot, Barrasso, the Republican, that actually know what they're talking about. Like, mm. it is sort of a miracle that yeah. that process has worked out and produced guys like that. It doesn't yeah. mean I agree with everything that they do, but when I watch those things, they're asking smart questions. They, <laughs> frankly, are angry at the right people and about the right things, and they're skeptical, skeptical in ways that I am. Yeah. You know, it's refreshing, Yeah. yeah. right? Right. Yeah. And I, I also think about like sort of the Nixon era of, uh, you know, just Nixon kind of his his uh, cabinet just kind of wanted to like expand growth. You know, they were they were such a you know, they were conservatives, but they were like a, a pro growth con yeah. conservative um, administration. Well, let me say this about that. So the thing that I think we miss when we talk about like the, the, the post-war golden era, whatever it is, you know, the thing everybody's nostalgic for these days 
is that as contested as the idea of American consensus was from the New Deal until let's say the civil rights movement, uh, there was still this idea that there should be a consensus and that's what we should be aiming for. Mm. So there's a great book by Wendy Wall, I think called Inventing the American Way. People can check that out, it's fantastic. But uh, part of it was that after World War II, everyone had lived through two world wars and a depression. The thing that they were freaked out about is that after World War II, there would be yet another depression that America's economy wouldn't reconvert into a civilian economy. So everyone from the AFL-CIO to like the National Association of Manufacturers to Richard Nixon, you know, to whoever agreed that we had to have a consumer-oriented growth economy and that that was the way that America was going to figure out how to move from wartime to peacetime production and provide for all. There are some nasty labor fights immediately post-war yeah. like about what is going to happen, who's going to get what, and how that's all going to shake out. And part of it was uh, what that produced was this sort of consensus around growth. Once we understand that that's why Nixon has some things to say, we realize that we might actually agree with, it's because of that context. And then that helps us appreciate what a unique moment the 70s energy mm. crisis was and what a departure Jimmy Carter's presidency was from those who'd come before him, especially his great malaise speech about the energy crisis, where he describes it as the moral equivalent of war. Mm. And he basically chastised, he's America's preacher, he chastises Americans for being wasteful. For the last several decades up until then, everyone from GE to the president was telling you to buy American and buy more because yeah. it was good for you. It was good for your neighbor. It was good for your town. It was good yeah. for the country and it was good for the world. That is the watershed moment right there. Like if we want to say that there's this sort of political aesthetic shift that is greatly important for energy in this country, that signifier is Jimmy Carter's energy right. crisis speech. Right. And, and him uh, encouraging people to put on sweaters instead of heating their home. He put solar panels, solar on, panels the on the White House. Yeah. He, he had yep. Schumacher as a guest. Schumacher, yeah. He had him come and visit him at the White House. Yeah. That's right. And base Dick Cheney, like at the, in the opening of the 2000s, was <laughs> like, yeah, that's a bunch of weak ass 70s pussy shit. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'm not doing any of that. We're drilling everything I can oh my find. God. <laughs> um, you know, like he did not buy that at all. Um, but look, like that's, it's really heartbreaking to sort of see this happen. It catches everybody off guard. The utilities most of all. Mm. I'm not saying that they were perfect. They had a lot of problems going in. Um, but they could basically not defend themselves at that yep. moment. Because the thing that people forget is that the Clean Air Act forced the utilities, basically through incentives, to buy their oil from OPEC because it mm. had less sulfur in it. And mm. so it polluted less, which meant that they were highly vulnerable to OPEC when it flexes its muscles in 1973. And that mm. makes all of their energy stuff go up. 
Yeah. Right. Like it is a crisis on all sides for them. Well, that's why this, you know, going back to sort of the, you know, you, you talked about how people are branded as denialists and I see this all the time now and it's such an offensive thing to say too. Um, but offense aside, uh, calling people denialists, cause that is the thing now. And it, I mean, it's been the thing since, you know, I guess since Carter is like weaponizing this, like, well, you don't care about the planet and you're killing everyone. And we, there's no time to think about anything. Um, mm-hmm. and, and everything goes off the table as far as like coming to a consensus, like you said, um, and doing what's best, what's rational for society, because there's no time because of this, you know, um, I don't know, is sort of Damocles. Is that like the right metaphor to use? It's like this, the, it's yeah. always hanging over our heads, this yeah, thing yeah. where you can't Impending do doom. Yeah, yeah. You can't do anything because yeah. Yeah, uh, if you look climate, at climate, you know, the climate, uh, the, the, I'm trying to finish my sentence yeah, here. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> my bad. No, it's all right. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that if you look at the discourse around the New York bill that just didn't pass, uh, mm-hmm. even though ostensibly one of the benefits was that they, they were claiming that uh, it would lower the cost of energy by 10%. I have no idea how they got. No one knows how that's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, Fred Stafford. <laughs> you know, look for him. And I think Matt Huber too, they're going to work on some kind of post-mortem on that. Yeah. I, I heard they're doing something like that. And but, apparently this thing is getting like re-debated on the floor on July 28th. Yeah. They just so, announced that. Yeah. Uh, so in all of the like run up to, you know, the, this massive explosion of NGO people, you know, sending angry tweets, uh, they only were talking about the, the idea that like, Oh, uh, the world will burn because of you, uh, yeah. that the environment mm-hmm. is going to burn and that I will die in a climate emergency. If you do not burn, I will die in a climate emergency and almost no, discu- no invoke invocation of the extremely high bills that people have been hit with no invocation of reliability. Mm-hmm. It's just about, I'm going to die. My children's going to, my children are going to die. I don't want to have kids because of you know the climate and that's it that really that really summarizes the the left's um sort of uh psychology this like delusional psychology of like just being like all the time just splaying themselves out like martyrs like you're killing me you know it's like the psychosis (laughs) that's the word it's like the psychosis of the left of like you know, oh, I'm dying. Why are you doing this to me and all these people? And we're yeah. so like, it's like ridiculous. Like, get a grip on yourself. You know, like we yeah. need to like. <laughs> and, and it's a total misread of yeah. of the conditions because the conditions yeah. are that if you look at people's top two complaints in the state, especially after the last few months, it's been that energy is unreliable and it's too expensive. Yeah. And, and if you had the economies of scale of the government and public power, you could address both of those things. Mm. But instead, they're, they want to decentralize the grid. Decentralize. That's the key word. Yeah. And Emmett said it before. And I think that's really the key is like centralizing versus decentralizing. And this idea that we can decentralize in order to like make things better. And it, it doesn't work that way. Like yeah. Yeah, our society does are, better. Yeah. Right. The trade-offs are different than people think. I mean... One of the things I'm trying to do in this this larger piece I'm, I'm writing on the grid is figure out how to talk about how ideas of progress changed and how the grid is also a story of the shifting nature of 
power and control in America. And I'm not going to say that centralization is always good or always done in the best way. I think that um, there are plenty of instances of corruption you can point to with utilities that indicate that there are some real issues there. But if we're just talking about what gets us the most reliable grid, it's clear that centralization has a role to play. However, I think that it is important for us to sort of ask these bigger, almost political philosophical questions about what that's going to mean. If you're on the left, you know, there's the, the Marxist point that it's like, you can centralize it, it's consolidated. Once you take it over, it's yours, right? Not everybody buys that, but I think that's a legit perspective to have. Mm -hmm. There's also the sort of the more like, I guess like New Deal Democrat thing, where it's just like the public sector may not need to be everything, but it should be powerful enough to keep the private sector honest. That was mm -hmm. the original intent of the TVA. It was a yardstick and a birch rod as FDR described it. Hmm. You know, And then you have the sort of decentralization dreams, which you know, uh, Fred and Matt wrote that very sharp piece about how those are sort of utopian fantasies that have no bearing in reality. But people are going to do them, they're gonna act on them anyway, because the trade-off to them is the world ending. And it's really hard to compete with that. Right. Like if you yep. really believe that, right. Like there's that guy, what's his name? I don't even remember what this fucking book is called. Uh, <laughs> but he basically does like, he writes this book. That's a letter to the kid. He doesn't know if he wants to have because of climate oh, change. It's basically, it's basically like between the world and me for people who work at the NRDC. <laughs> like, the, so anyway, that like, you know, that's the type of person who's so freaked out about this stuff that they're not going to, allow for a different process to take place. And like Fox is saying, they don't want the debate to take place. Now, what's interesting about what the left is doing with crisis rhetoric, it's a climate crisis now, mm -hmm. you know, you got to build or burn is it's going to go in the typical way, the invocation of a crisis, uh, the enactment of solutions that make the crisis work, and then post hoc goalpost shifting to act like it's somebody else's fault and you need to double down to right. solve the crisis that is actually worse now. Real, real public power has never been tried. That's what's going to happen if yeah. if they pass it and it gets blocked by the the massive swath of red counties in New York State. They're going to say, "Well, it's because of the chuds in these red counties. We didn't actually get to try the ideas." Right. Yeah. Exactly. Because the people whose property we have built them on didn't like it because they're part of the KKK or whatever they're going to say. <laughs> right. You know, like that's the, that's sort of the perspective of people like this. I mean, you guys would know better than I would because you're out in Kingston, which is sort of like uh, Peter Buffett's like death star. <laughs> of <laughs> <D -Growth. laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, they don't even have uh, NGOs out in these communities. Like you think of this, they'd get one NGO that's like, oh, we're the rural the rural you think they you think they'd astroturf a river keeper out there or something yeah right? like the rural new york uh, environmental alliance the, the interesting thing though is that river keeper and mountain keeper which are like both robert f kenny jr ngos they they're not nice. on board with the the public power stuff hmm. because i think they're more in bed with um the independent power yeah producers 
And that's that's and that's what uh, you know. Matty Iglesias kind of had a misreading. He was partially right. Um, he tweeted the other day that like the build public renewables thing came out of opposition to the chippy uh, CHPE um, hydroelectric oh, the, line. The, yeah, the transmission line that was supposed to run to Quebec. Yeah. yeah, which which is moving forward, but he kind of misread it because actually there's like a split in the environmental community and half of them are in bed with the independent power producers of New York, which are how, how solar and wind are currently built in New York State. Mm -hmm. And then half of them are in this kind of, you know, build public renewables DSA coalition. Mm -hmm. um, so he kind of misread that. And that's and that's why, yeah, they, they haven't been able they the public people have not been e able to either get unions or any kind of rural NGOs on board. So it's like D the DSA and all of these sort of like leftist political groups are riding this line in between and tacking on this mm -hmm. idea of selling it as this public power you build, yeah. even though it really isn't much of a public power thing in the first place. Right. It's about appointing them to run citizen assemblies in this, like in I, rural New York. Sort of the idea of public power, but not public power in reality when the actual big dogs like Riverkeeper, Scenic Hudson, Sierra yeah. Club, they just want private. They're they really just want like private right. power or or if, or degrowth. Preservation. Yeah. Preservation yeah. and not conservation. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's 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 a wild set out there. This all becomes a little bit more legible when you take a look at who was interested in re-regulating electricity markets. And it was people like Amory Lovins and Ralph Kavanaugh of the NRDC who were very in favor of electricity spot markets. And they were just sort of like more free market oriented wonks like Paul Joskow, who's a very smart guy, uh, who's sort of the prophet of re-regulation. Like he writes a book on it and he co-authors a book on it in the early eighties, I wanna say. And he's basically like, yeah, this is how the spot market should look. That's basically how it looks now. And he's like, and it might have these problems and it basically has all of those problems now. Yeah. You know, um, he's been more ruthlessly honest about what's gone wrong with this process. You can find Senate testimony from him. And you can also uh, read him and Amory Lovins duking it out in print. Uh, and Joskow is basically like, Lovins is full of shit. None of these ideas are real. Mm. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, once you see that it's sort of the green groups and the free marketeers that get together to restructure, come up with the ideas that are going to lead to the restructuring of the electricity system in the United States, it's clear why these green groups are on the side of independent power producers in New York, who are the only people that can build renewables. It's clear why they have such a hostility to utilities. Hmm. You know, I'll... It makes sense if you think back to the 60s and 70s, like what it must have been like to live through a very explicitly managerial top-down society, mm. right? That's sort of what I was trying to get with my meandering thing about like power and how it's distributed or whatever. Like mm. you can sort of see from their eyes, like why that might be insanely frustrating. And because it seems psychically linked at least to the Cold War apparatus, it's all sort of the man 
you can maybe become a little bit more sympathetic to their view. Now, I still think it's wrong, but once we put on those glasses, we can kind of see how the libertarian green things sort of come together in an old school, almost like Jeffersonianism. Mm. But I would say another element to that is also um, like whole earth catalog, right? Uh, Which then becomes like one of the first forums on the internet. That's, that's, you know, it's cool that... uh... I think what resonates, you know, what what brings us together is kind of this uh, anti-Malthusianism. Yeah, for sure. That uh, that we share, and that um, this belief in growth and in industry as tools for um, raising the average person's standard of living and mm-hmm. having more prosperity. I mean, w- you know, one thing that uh, one debate that's going on here that you might enjoy uh, is that there's a factory being brought back online in our the Hudson Valley. It's been defunct for decades. Um, they're bringing it back with marijuana, which was just legalized and like, that's not, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah. But the thing is like, it's a grow operation and it's going to need 24 seven energy. And oh they're man, need- those guys measure <laughs> it's kilowatts per pound. That's yeah. how those guys actually measure their weight. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I learned that from yeah. Robert Bryce's book. <laughs> yeah. And they, they, so they know ex- exactly. So they know exactly that they need like 50 megawatts dedicated 24 yes. seven energy. And yeah. the thing that they're running into is that everyone here is so indoctrinated with solar and they're like, Oh, well, just put some solar on the rooftop. And they're like, no, that's not even going to work. And also it'll mess up yeah. like, the grow operation apparently. So yeah. uh, we have to figure out how to get 50 mega. It's like 300 jobs that it would create, wow. but wow. we have to figure out how to get 50 megawatts to these people. And like, there's Hell not really, yeah. there's not really a clear answer yet. Weed against the greens, baby. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I have no idea how they're going to do that. I mean, I think that's a problem for anybody. Like it's a big problem in Colorado right now because they have so many grow operations out there. Um, places like Denver, those people are really like creating a lot of demand issues <laughs> yeah. um, for their grid. Uh, I don't know how they've resolved that. I haven't kept up with it at all, but yeah, like basically anything we want to do this cool is going to require a lot of energy. Well, like you know, what's what we were talking about crypto before. It's interesting because like crypto is almost a better partner for energy because uh, it can like- They need uh, loads of it. You can, but you can also, you can dial it up and down depending on, like, let's say you're repowering a power plant and the only mm-hmm. way you can make the economics work is by like doing crypto as well. Yeah. Uh, whereas with the marijuana operation, it just needs 24 seven base yep. load and like yeah. all 50 megawatts will go directly to the plant. Yeah, it's super yeah. allocated to it. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's some crazy guys. There. I don't know if they're still around. They're called great American mining. And these guys were crazy. I listened to like a two hour interview with them because I thought it was just so fascinating. And like, I'm not a crypto dude. Like I talk to crypto people because they tend to be energy people. Like they kind of get it, you know? Um, And I saw, or these guys were talking about how they would take their like shipping container that has their rig for mining crypto and like drive it out to the frack pad in North Dakota. And then literally cut a deal with the well pad that where it's just like, when you guys are gonna flare, let us know. And we run it through our system. And so mm. they were just out there in the like scorching heat and like freezing cold of North Dakota and this little shipping container, like trying to catch flares on different well pads. 
you know, hmm. it's just really wild stuff. So you mean there was like excess excess energy at those moments? Yeah, exactly. Or... Yeah, they were like fl flaring off some of the gas they were capturing or whatever. And so they'd kind of deal with them where they'd be like, hey, if you're going to do that, rather than just like emitting it into the air, why don't we harness it for mining crypto? Interesting. Um, yeah, which just seemed like real cowboy shit. I would never personally <laughs> do. Did we did we talk about the DDT thing? Because I found that really interesting in your oh, in the nuclear piece, yeah, about about DDT and uh, Rachel Carson's work. And yeah, I had no idea that um, that connection there that that DDT they actually the early environmentalists in the seventies wanted to that was like a, a sort of a first campaign they did right was to. Mm -hmm. Because and you know I feel like I've I've heard about this before or whatever DDT being like bad I you know whenever I spray before I go camping I'm like oh does it have DDT that's bad right you know it's just something that people think about but the real motivation behind it was that it was killing too many bugs in like the third world that were causing malaria and therefore creating a population explosion I guess yeah. supposedly. So so, I mean, I think the, the way to think about this is like there is the eugenicist movement that foreruns the post-war environmental movement. Uh, guys like Aldous Huxley um, were really freaked out by overpopulation. The Greens sort of inherit those fears. The Greens, rather than seeing it as like, they saw them as like interconnected issues right? It is both killing the planet and creating too many people. Like those mm -hmm. are basically the same thing to them. Right. So I think that's how it worked in their mind. Like, I also think that some of these people maybe in the green movement, like we're really just worried about the birds, even though Rachel Carson's research is kind of bunk. People have gone huh. through and compared it to like Audubon society's egg counts at the time that she's observing and seeing like, increases in robin eggs not decreases <laughs> like she was making claims that like biocide was taking place that just wasn't happening huh. which doesn't mean that there are no ill effects at all from misuse of ddt right yeah. right and that doesn't mean that just like whoever dumped all those barrels of ddt off the coast of california like that's fucking cool and awesome you know? <laughs> like, yeah. and not an issue what it does mean is that uh, guys like William Ruckelshaus, who was the head of the EPA and who helped create it, um, help, helped uh, sponsor the Draper Fund, which was run by General, I think, William Draper, who was a denazification opponent and a hardcore eugenicist. He was the guy who had the EPA when the decision on DDT came up. Wow. And the judge who was overseeing all of it, there were hundreds of exhibits or whatever pieces of evidence. It seems like there's a little bit shysty stuff going on both sides of this, if you look really closely at the record, both for and against. But at the end of it, the judge was like, look, I don't think that this is a harm in all of these ways per the use of DDT that we're talking about here. Ruckelshaus didn't show up to the hearings, didn't read the report, and banned DDT. Hmm. Now he was a hardcore eugenicist type guy, hmm. you know? So I can say that his intentions are more clearly linked to that than maybe yeah. someone like Rachel Carson, who I do think she might've had, I do not know enough about her to call her a Malthusian. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the footnotes in it, I sort of defend her a little bit from people like Rush Limbaugh and Thomas Sell, who hmm. basically compared her to Hitler because hmm. of the effect that the DDT ban had on the developing world. 
And if we want to put even more nuance into the picture, by the 50s, it was pretty clear that DDT wasn't the silver bullet to malaria people thought it was. Other things were really important, like development, like dredging, like mm. all of these things that the Greens were never going to allow happen mm. in the developing world. Um, so when people say that, like, you know, it got rid of the silver bullet, that's not the complete picture. But you can find New York Times articles from the early 2000s that are sort of like, yeah, actually, this did have a negative impact on Africa over time, you know, and I don't think all of those malaria deaths could have been stopped by DDT, but a significant portion of them probably could have been. Um, And the reason why they couldn't get access to it is because if the US was going to ban it, then it just sort of disintegrated the market for it. Mm. So that's a little bit of the backstory there. And that's sort of the intimacy uh, that Malthusianism has or with the green movement, you know, in that fight for DDT, that is when the Environmental Defense Fund forms. Uh, that is also what makes David Brower call Paul Ehrlich and his wife and say, hmm. can you write a book uh, to sort of steer these this burgeoning green movement in the right direction hmm, towards yeah. your ideas, which involve, of course, population control and things like that. And it's very funny to read an interview with Ehrlich and his wife, um, a little essay they wrote sort of looking back 50 years later after its publication, and they're immediately distancing themselves from guys like Hugh Moore and from uh, General Draper, who they're in their little thing. They're like, yeah, like our publisher took the name for our book from Mm. his population bomb campaign and, you know, Draper, this this piece gets written in like the early 2000s. So it's just like, you know, Draper is really good friends with the Bush family and like kind of racist. And so that's a shame. Meanwhile, if you go into the population bomb and look at like the first few pages, there's one scene in it that's like one stinking hot night in Delhi. Yeah. You know, like, well, yeah. it's Ehrlich, like, Ehrlich talks about that, that, that that was his like primary inspiration was going to India and just being shocked by how many people there were and how how dirty it was and how busy it was. Yeah, how, yeah, how dare these horrible pores? I mean, look, like this shit was everywhere, right? Like Margaret Sanger was a hardcore eugenicist, yeah. you know? Um, like she was gonna leave the country if JFK got elected because he was Catholic and anti-abortion, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, so there were a lot of people like that. Like LBJ said, like a pound of population uh, controls worth like, you know, however much population or however much uh, economic growth. Mm. You know, or an ounce of population control is worth a pound of economic growth. So a lot of these ideas were out there and the green movement was a product of its time. I mean, I sent you guys that um, uh, nice archive I found of the first Earth Day in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where the teach-in was invented and all of that stuff, all of the flies are like population growth uh, scare stuff. They have seminars on it, you know, like it's an undeniable part of the post-war movement's history. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it comes, it comes in all flavors, right? It could be like sort of a vulgar sort of overt kind of racist, like, you know, screw the, 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 the eaters. people of color and the, they wouldn't yeah, call yeah. them that but they would yeah, call yeah. them like the racist version of yeah, you know, yeah. Then there's like the softer version which is like you know the more leftist kind of democrat like uh we have to save the planet yeah. but it's like there yeah there are super woke people like peter buffett that'll, that <laughs> i've seen say 
uh, well, you know, it's a shame because uh, we showed up to Africa and we got them addicted to modernity. And now that now they want to burn fossil fuel so that they can like continue on that path. And yeah, that's the nice like, way. That's the nice way they put man. Yeah. Fucking poisoned by, you know, I always think of that scene in um, Rousseau's uh, discourse on inequality where he describes the, uh, a noble savage. He tells the story of this uh, indigenous guy who comes to Europe and, you know, sees everybody in a sort of like, it's been a long time since I read this, so I'm probably butchering it. But the thing he decides to take back to his home is a European sword, hmm. right? And I think that that's how guys like Peter Buffett see development in Africa, hmm. is they have taken the most brutal part of what we've done with modernity and think wrongly it's a good thing. You know, yeah, um, and and it's just that same old story over again, and it's hard to come up with like a. I mean, I can come up with counter narratives all day, but one of the things that I think remains sort of a, a a driving question for me that I don't know how to answer. It's like one of the things that keeps me up at night is like, what is it about crisis language? What is it about the way this stuff has worked since the seventies? that has managed to so frustrate any sort of like coherent, let's say national democratic conversation about these issues. And look, like I get that like the world doesn't run on ideology alone. <laughs> I do enough material analysis every day doing grid brief uh, that uh, to know that, but you can't discount it either. And I think that that's like a, a troubling question. Um, I don't really know what's persuasive morally or aesthetically or politically about some of these ideas. There are moments where I can sort of historically contextualize what someone's saying and put myself in their shoes. And I try to do that to a degree, but at some fundamental level, I just don't get it. And maybe that's a lack of imagination on my part. Uh, to be unable to fully envision what these people are thinking. Um, but it's just truly baffling and tragic to me. Yeah. Well, it probably depends on, on who um, sure. you're trying to. Some people to... are more reasonable than others, you know, like. Right. I, I mean, yeah, that, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are just scared and they're just, they are handed answers that, I don't know, they, they think that. They feel emotionally resonant. Right you know, there's people, yeah, who are just like kind of ideologically poisoned. And then there's people who are just kind of cynical. And I think we talked about this last time where it's like, and then there's like a blend, you know, or mm -hmm. of um, part of it's cynicism and part of it is just sort of not knowing and being swept up in something and being mm -hmm. scared. And I it, know it, it's, it's very hard to untangle. Um, I mean, I will all say of this, this stuff. like one of the things that I think might be an answer, but I don't, like, I can't tell if I'm just like smoking my own dope, you know, like when I say it is that I do think there is a pervasive meaninglessness in society. Um, I think a lot of things that supplied meaning are gone. Mm. Uh, people might think some of those things are reactionary and that's good. Maybe they're right, but nothing's replaced them really. It doesn't seem, except for the idea that uh, it's an emergency and the world might end. Mm. And in right. that way, like the that's a cohesion. really, 
Right. That's a really quick supply of meaning. Suddenly everything you do has weight. Suddenly it really matters what's going on in the world. Right. Um, Suddenly, you know, whether you like generate garbage or whatever uh, by taking too many receipts with you home at the grocery store is like a high level question about your goodness in the world. Yeah. You're connected, your connectedness to other people. Yeah. I is interesting because when COVID first hit, it was almost that weird sort of global, like, Oh my God, everyone in the entire world is experiencing the same thing all together. And that's kind of, was kind of cool, (laughs) but you know, it was also scary because it's, you know, was unknown virus who, I don't know. It's crazy, but uh, yeah, no, I think what you're touching on is this, this yearning for social cohesion. And um, you're right that like an emergency is something that is the first thing that sort of knocks people into that feeling of social cohesion is Mm -hmm. we're in this emergency together. We have to act together, but emergencies also put us in that dual position of like, well, we can't think rationally. We, we don't have any time. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's like, we want the social cohesion without the like irrationality of like an emergency situation. Right. Um, well, take a look at, um, take a look at what is it? Uh, the new Republic's like vertical on climate is called apocalypse soon. Yeah, I know. I, I hate the freaking right? names. I know and- it's, What's really frustrating um, about that is that it doesn't really provide any level-headed analysis. That is not what it's even for. All the conclusions are agreed upon and what must happen is people, it's just preaching to the choir, you know? And I think that's a real shame, right? Like it's a real shame that uh, if if it bleeds, it leads. You know, mm-hmm. like there's mm-hmm. something about it. We love salaciousness, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, shit, I love true crime. <laughs> That's yeah. mostly what I listen to because I read the news all day for a living. Yeah, I right. don't, I just, you know, I, I <clears throat> lighten the load by listening to murder stories. Yeah, but uh, you you know, dishes. yeah, but you know, it's not like actual news. You're like, <laughs> you're... no, no, no. And, and all I'm saying is that there's this sort of a, attraction to the gear or to the, to the frightening, to mm-hmm. the, grotesque to the extreme um and i think that some of the stuff also taps into that as well there's this really interesting moment in the republic where i think it's socrates talking and i don't know i can't you know i'd have to go back and find the actual passage but it's this great thing where he's he's talking about like walking he's he's telling a story of this guy who's like walking along and like sees this like grotesque like mutilated body or something like that and like covers his face with his cloak but then like, but then looks at it. Yeah. And it's like, there's this compulsion in him <laughs> right, like right. to do that. And I think that that's part of what's happening here too, is that it's like the idea that it can, like Mark Fisher has that whole thing. It's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Mm. And I think if he had been a little bit more artful of a thinker and a little bit more dissident against the left himself, mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, he could have and lived longer, frankly, tragically yeah. in the past. You yeah. know, very sensitive and sharp guy. Um, he might have gotten there with some mm-hmm. of the stuff that he was thinking about towards the end of his life, that this permanent emergency 
cannot create a constituency that does anything other than serve the status quo. Right. And that's what all this stuff is in service of. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, and we did a recent episode about climate grief and talking about the, the, I don't know if you heard about the guy that self-immolated on the steps of the Supreme oh, Court. Oh, yeah. No one knew about climate change until he did that. So I'm glad right. he brought it <laughs> yeah. up that way. Right. Or the, oh, yeah. I hate to laugh because it's terrible. What fucking, it's so fucking sad to happen. I mean, they're saying like, oh, well, it was noble that he did that because, you know, it's the Buddhist. No, it's demented and, and it's tragic. And I feel yeah. for his family. Yeah. yeah. You know, like the, it just, uh, I, uh, I know. Man. I mean, I don't even yeah. know what to say. Like, I, yeah. it, it's so it's the it's the cheapening of everything. Yeah, that I, I cannot stand. Yeah, like that. Like that is my most. I am definitely a product of Catholic school opinion. It is the <laughs> cheapening of everything, the lack of dignity that often galls me the most. Yeah, um, and it, the celebration of those things yeah. as if they are virtue themselves. Yeah, well, I, just, I, think, I can't accept it. And you look at the history of humanity, like we humanity has overcome everything, mm. everything. Mm -hmm. Like there's never been a every single bleak period in history, which you know, there's always something going on. Humanity has always overcome it. It's always moved up, moved forward and moved on, survived and transcended every challenge that's been thrown at it. And there's all these people that are that believe that somehow we're at the end and it's, it's, it's like a, a, a you know, that is the, the mind virus that's infecting people right now. It's not, it's not with Tico. It's this, this fatalism. No, it's, it's an old structure. I mean, look like one of the sort of like ideological linchpins of the Holy Roman empire was Eschaton. You know, as long as the empire stayed together, the world wasn't going to end. Can you imagine how deflating it was on so many levels when the empire fell apart and the world kept going? Yeah. yeah. That's what this is. Yeah. Right. Well, and you know, when you're talking about like, you know, looking at the true crime stuff and this sort of like wanting to look at when it, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. It, it is sort of this almost like libidinal, like, um, it reaches that base emotion and it gives people that quick hit. And, you know, we all want that kind of stuff and that's okay to have a little bit of it, but we do like kind of need, maybe this is like my, my more and more uh, conservative side coming out that we do need like some self-discipline. Uh, we do need to sort of grow up a little bit. Um, I think that our society, our culture encourages people to become like little babies and just sort of react and feel libidinal, libidinal about everything. And sure, I um, mean, yeah, yeah, to quote, sorry, sorry, just to add, add okay. to your point. I mean, if people want to uh, sort of go to a lefty thinker for that, they should go to Alan Badiou. He has this great quote where he says, those who have nothing have only their discipline. Mm. Yeah. You that's know, what we need and, yeah yeah <laughs> some discipline some self-discipline yeah. but yeah the left freaks out about that Wait, you, I, I think that you should be able to do drugs and then go do a protest <laughs> and some mutual aid and be high well i know yeah. and then they uh, yeah and they freak out and they say oh you don't you want to control me and you're authoritarian you're authoritarian you it's want kind of like yeah <laughs> <laughs> i know right <laughs> shush don't tell them that but yeah <laughs> the answer to no, that is yeah 
Like, I know. Be, yeah. Cause you can't just do anything right. you want right. and expect to get the results that you desire. Right. Nothing has ever worked that way. Nothing yeah. will ever work that way. That's right. You know, like, and look, Hey, like I'm not morally perfect. I got a lot to learn on that front. You know, like, I'm not going to sit here and tell people like, you know, uh, Hey, take it from me, the guy who has it all figured out. Mm. But I would say that struggling under the yoke of discipline mm -hmm. is an enriching life that provides value and meaning which is different than i would say like delight or pleasure or something like that you know there's um and then people uh, take it to the extreme too where they become like so disciplined or they they need that like oh, guru that guru absolutely. like jordan peterson to sort of like you know slap them into submission or whatever and it's like totally i mean especially young men like that yeah, i think that right. like that is you know and i mean a lot of them don't you know make their bed in the morning and they probably should but you know <laughs> the fact that like somebody would decry that as yeah. like absolutely authoritarian as a subject uh, suggestion which was happening for a while yeah i mean zero books basically made an entire publishing company out of <laughs> that um you know uh but the question is, this is sort of this chicken and egg problem that I've encountered over on Exhaust, where we take a look at thinkers like Alistair McIntyre, Christopher Lash, people that uh, many would consider like reactionary. And we took in earnest their critiques of basically a loss of virtue. And it seems to me like we're in this really chicken and egg problem, because I don't think, I'm not like a, an idealist, I'm not like a philosophical supremacist where I think if we just imagine the right things, then we'll yeah. be able to go forward in humanity. Right. But I also, you know, we're gonna have to figure out how to come together and work on things in common. Uh, but at the same time, there seem to be like auto culture entrenching mechanisms at work that install to varying degrees in, in people, uh, habits, ways of thinking, desires, manufactured desires that frustrate the inculcation of those things. Anybody who has been a part of the DSA and in a DSA Facebook group knows exactly what the fuck I'm talking <laughs> about. You do not need me to explain it to you, you know? And that's, by the way, I used to be on one of those. So that's not like a yeah. dunk. I'm not mm -hmm. saying I'm better than that. We're all former <laughs> DSA know. members here. No, that's, you know, that's yeah. a support group. Right. Yeah. You know, so 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 that's really that's really what I'm getting at. Um, I don't know how to square that circle. Uh, if you do, my DMs are open. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's tough. Well, I mean, I, I honestly I don't you, you just can't go to like the left or the right. You just kind of have to you have to kind of synthesize because both both directions will you'll fall into a trap and you'll just they both sides Centrism of this, is the only way forward Fox. i, 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 totally I don't agree. know <laughs> i guess i guess i don't know you know like or escape the this like left right like mm -hmm. i don't know po politics aren't real in our we don't have real politics in our country right like or real politics are not accessible to the public they get they get like 
packaged, pre-packaged politics that they're allowed to talk about. And it's sad. Like, you know, I'm somebody who's always liked to talk about politics and I just, and I, public forums are supposed to be that. And that's like what Facebook is supposed to be. You can't go on Facebook and talk like to people that I know in my real life, I can't talk about politics anymore because everyone's just bought into one brand or another. And there's just, you there's no room to even talk about things. Uh, people don't want to know how things work anymore. Maybe they, they do, but they're not, they're just every time they're, they're just all the paths, all the, like the funnels that would get them somewhere are just they're They go to, they go to where the ruling class wants them to go. And they, they, it's, it's very hard to actually learn things I mean, and just watching like mainstream news when we were hanging out with my my aunt and uncle in Wisconsin and like they're they're super people, but like my aunt just watches like mainstream news and it is it reminded me of watching like that episode of The Simpsons where Bart and Lisa have their own news station and and Bart is like um, Baldwin. Yeah, and he's like he does a segment called Bart's People. And it's just like where he's just talking to people. And he's like, but how did that make you feel? Like, that's all the news yeah. is. And it's it's crazy. Like, this is, it's, they're not reporting facts. They're just talking about how everything makes them feel. And it's insane, you know? This, hey, this is, this is an old problem, right? Like, everything we're talking about in this domain is interrogated in the Republic, right? Like, this is what to do with information, epistemology's relationship to politics and how decisions get made in a democracy for better or for worse has been an anxiety since the ancient Greeks created that system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we haven't like graduated from those political problems in a way. They come in different forms now, perhaps more seductive, mm -hmm. perhaps, you know, they cover more of the earth now, but uh, and I'm not saying we should agree with Plato, whatever his conclusions are. What I am saying is that we might want to take a step back and I have to remind myself that maybe the combinations I'm facing are unique because this is the historical movement moment I belong to, but the general vibe has been there before me, right? And then yeah, I can yeah. sort of see myself in a in, in a flow of history, mm -hmm. that I belong to the world, that I am part of history, that my life is not actually that large. I am not the main character. <laughs> I'm just one of many people trying to figure it out. Yeah. And taking that view has done me, I think, um, it has helped me reduce my stress level mm. when I'm covering things that go wrong all the time which yeah. is unfortunately as somebody who covers energy, what I'm doing all the time, you know, I'm not going to cry about it. Like people were crying about having to cover Donald Trump, you know, like I'm part of the laptop class. That's pretty fucking great. You know? <laughs> um, but, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say that uh, there are times where I'm often greatly, greatly worried about our country and its future and, and the world and parts yeah. of the world where I now have friends where they have way less than we do. You know? Yeah. So I well, think, I, mean, I think that's the view I take these days. Yeah. That's a really good way to think about it. I think is being part of part of somebody within the context of history, because so much of our, um, our Western narrative is to place ourselves as the main character. Yeah. Um, 
and it's good to feel like a sense of agency in the world and you should sort of like but also recognizing your context within within the world and its history so yeah you 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 kind of know the limitations of your agency so it's not like uh you're totally giving up and saying well i've, I've no free will but you're also not saying like everything is on my shoulders and if i don't do if i don't start bleeding my heart out onto the street and tying myself to the the tennis court um, with stuff written on my shirt about how many days we have left to make yeah. a decision. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Uh, that <laughs> you poor know, young woman. Yeah. I, I know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like the uh, that moment in, uh, what's it called? The time travel movie. What the hell is that called? Where yeah, Benjamin where they, Button. The guy's playing the guitar and he's like, he's playing Johnny B. Good. He's like, uh, you're not ready for it, but your kids are going to love it. Oh, uh, oh, Back to the Future. Back to the Future, back to the future yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah. it's like that. And, uh, you know, I feel that way about some of the, political projects that we've undertaken in our our lives here that uh you know there, there are some things where like you you can see it and you you can see what's going wrong and you're, you're trying to be the main character to, to stop it or to fix it or prevent something bad from happening but sometimes you know the historical moment the the conditions of that moment just aren't that they're not ready for it yet but no. in the future well, they're going to love what you presented yeah, I was, I was, you know, I was actually emailing, emailing with Meredith about this. I was like, you know, I'm very frustrated. I feel very inadequate about this work. You know, this is a whole domain I don't know a lot about. And there are people who I know they are wrong on first principles, but I am not smart enough to actually like spar with them or get to the bottom of how I think they're bullshitting. That's really frustrating. Mm. She was like, look, we're only ever responsible for part of the work. You can't do it all and you just got to figure out what your lane is and yeah. stick in it. And to put it another way, and I say this all the time because it was a powerful moment for me, the most important question anybody ever asked me was when a sponsor asked me, what if you're just some fucking guy? <laughs> what if you're just some fucking guy? <laughs> like every other fucking guy out there. What yeah. if that's just you? At the time I was working uh, retail at a Hot Topic <laughs> and I really didn't want to believe that I was just some fucking guy. I really wanted to believe that I was like somehow better than that. And I had been demoted by an unjust world and huh. working a shitty nine to five job in retail for minimum wage. But really, I'm just some fucking guy. Huh. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a meaningful life to have. Mm. That's a good yes. life to have if you can try to figure out how to live it right. And that's what I try to do now. And I hope that shows up in the work that I do. I think so. I think so. I think that's really powerful stuff to, to recognize that we, we are a humanity. We're not just, we're not just a bunch of main characters in a Marvel movie <laughs> where we, uh, the only reason we create the world together, right? Like we can't, we can't just be atomized individuals and, uh, I think that's powerful stuff to realize because once you start thinking that way, you can kind of get out of that framework that keeps us locked in this like sort of introspective uh, doom chamber mm-hmm. <laughs> of, uh, well, I'm dying alone. I was born alone. I'm dying alone. You know, that's, that's um, I think the ethos that keeps us sort of like apart and unable to overcome, you know, like, the problems that we we face collectively mm-hmm. yeah definitely you know i mean i figure 
this is just going to be a long road. And it'll be, it'll be continuing after we're long gone. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You know, so. And that's I, why I believe it'll take 50 years to. I was about to bring it back to that. Yeah. It took 50 like, years to destroy the grid and it's going to take 50 years to rebuild years. it. And yeah, we have to, we have to be okay with that. Yeah. You have to resign yourself, you know, especially because I am a pro-nuclear guy and I talk to nuclear advocates all the time. Uh, you know, no one's really a fan of me saying like, this isn't happening in the next 10 years. Not really. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I think that's true. I wouldn't say yeah. if I didn't think it was true. I, I think that, I think there is somewhat of a blind spot in the nuclear community. There's nothing about the nuclear community that's inherently inoculated from the problems that other proponents no, of, of energy have. And I, I, I do think that there's, there's kind of a tunnel vision and a lack of self-awareness and humility about. Oh, dude, uh, like I look at hey, reality I, is. <laughs> I also get why people think pro-nuclear people are obnoxious. First of all, because I'm obnoxious. Uh, <laughs> secondly, because like I get some small things kind of like wrong or not perfectly phrased in uh, the piece. Like I say, Three Mile Island never generate electricity again. Of course, one reactor on that site did until 2019. So. You know, but really I was talking about the one that melted down. Man, the yeah. amount of DMs <laughs> that I have gotten, the amount of replies that are just like, you know, you really need to reach out to the editor and like get this fixed you know, oh, or whatever. Yeah. It's like, and hey, look, like, but as somebody who's also been on the other side of that, I get it. You're so used to new, like people getting to say whatever the hell they want about nuclear, mm. that of course you've got this like hair trigger on you. Yeah. about yeah. even the, and especially because a lot of them are engineers so they're highly precise people you know yeah. like i have two liberal arts majors i'm always kind of fucking winging it while yeah. I'm out there well I, I think that's actually the thing that the nuclear the pro-nuclear industry or the uh, you know sphere kind of frustrates me the most is that they get lost in these details and they don't yeah, understand no and i i think what we were talking about before that the world that we all operate in is the info war right is getting the information out getting out the narratives to people so that people can actually learn what the fuck's going on because regular people get a lot they they'll tune out they don't have time for these details mm -hmm. and i think a lot of people in the nuclear industry get so wonky about stuff and they do themselves a disservice by being like too friendly too you know you have you can't fight fair. They're not fighting fair. So if you just say, come out and say something and you're, you're like defending nuclear, like you have to just roll with it. Cause it's the momentum we got to keep, we shouldn't just say things, shoot off the hip and not care about any being correct. But at the same time, what matters more is the momentum that we're, we're going in. And if people are understanding, you know, the, the, the vibes, the gist, the, the narrative, um, you know, not to get too off topic, but what's funny is uh, a little anecdote I'll share is that the other day I was helping a friend get um, a candidate on the ballot, collecting signatures outside the uh, grocery store here in the Hudson Valley. And um, a woman comes up and, you know, she's retired and she's telling me about how um, she, she kind of liked the opportunity to talk to somebody. So she's telling me about how the food prices are so crazy and she's on food stamps and her, her husband, she's a widow. Uh, her husband was a vet and it's like terrible. Ooh. And then all of a sudden she just sort of switches to the, the central Hudson issue, like the bills going crazy, the electricity bills going crazy this, this winter and spring. And she, 
she leans over to me and just says, is it because of the solar panels? And I was just like, yes. Yes. <laughs> I just said, Chad, I was just like, Chad, yes. And she yeah. just like, she goes, oh my God. And she just like puts her hand up and she just high fives me. She's like, I knew it. I knew it. She didn't need yeah. any explanation. she brought it up herself and she was just like is it because of the solar panels people know like people know that they're getting bullshitted so it's not it's like our job isn't isn't as hard as we think it is because we're fighting their battle all the time we're like we have to fight them on this and that and this and that we have to do all the homework so we we get the reward yeah right right right. i want highly motivated b students that's all i want (laughs) that's all i care about yeah c's got degrees yeah, there we go. There we go. We love it. We'd love to see it. You know what I mean? Like that, that's I look, I'm not interested in giving people bad information, but right. I'm willing to take things as they are. Yeah. And and to work with it. Yeah. You know, yeah. i hey, like at this point, my life is filled with such an ideological diversity of people because of energy that I'm like, I, I don't even know what's going on politically. <laughs> what I do know is that I have all of these disparate people focused on the same issue with more or less the same vision yeah, yeah. for what they think should come next. And yeah. like, that's inspiring to me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That was, uh, and I've, I've mentioned this too, that that's something that I take a lot of pride in with that Marxism and energy video that I put together mm-hmm. where I just sort of spliced together a bunch of podcast interviews. And I was a little bit worried too, that a few people would be like, I don't want to be in a video with that person, you know, but everyone was cool. Yeah. I don't and, care. Like, and it was, it's like, well, you don't, you don't care. But <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody, nobody cared. Yeah, but, nobody cared. Yeah. And it was, you know, I, I take a lot of pride in the fact that like, you know, we, we might all sort of like, stick our flags in different political camps and ideologies, but we, we come together because the, the underlying motivation is the same that we are Mm -hmm. pro growth. We are pro Mm -hmm. society. We're pro humanity. We're anti energy, -energy, anti Malthusian. And uh, that I think is the most important battle of like of our time right now. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it is really going to make the next few years of politics. So um, I'm just going to do right here at the end, a little plug. If you're interested (laughs) in learning more about that, you can subscribe to my newsletter. It's free and comes out five days a week. Go to gridbrief.com slash subscribe uh, and hit me up there. Yeah, follow Emmett and he puts out so much work. Uh, It's great. Gridbrief is great. Um, I'm amazed at how uh, dedicated you are to putting that out so frequently. (laughs) Thank you. I did it while I was moving. Like as we were driving across the country, I was like doing, writing the newsletter as soon as we get into the Airbnb. Nice. Um, You know, it's a lot of fun. I learn something every day, which is great. And I get to write on all of these issues, which is fascinating to me, especially the history of them. So um, I would also like to, on record, thank Fox for letting me use y'all's electricity bill in the early days of Grid Brief oh. this year uh, to talk about, I took a screen cap of it <laughs> so that yeah. I could talk about rising prices in New York. Uh, it was nuts. Everyone went nuts here. $1,000 bill. Yeah, some nowhere. people got like, what, $5,000 bills? Yeah, all like, kinds, we weren't even the worst kinds. one. Yeah. Yeah. We're lucky. Yeah. We don't have natural we were... gas through them, so. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. we were spared the the absolute worst, but God, man, that's killer. That would clean me out right now. Yeah, you know, like damn. All that matters is that two stood against many. That's what's important. 
So grant me one request. Grant me revenge. been listening to the space commune podcast i'm fox and my co-host is alex and today we've been talking to the wonderful emmett penny um you you already heard all the things that he's doing uh grid brief is awesome uh follow him on twitter uh nuke barbarian right that's still your handle that's right at nuke yeah, barbarian yeah. we gotta do we gotta do the outro with the the basil theodorus or whatever that guy's name is the uh the guy that did the music for Conan the Barbarian. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, yeah. Dude. I love that movie so much. Dude, I love John Milius. I, like, we've done an episode on John Milius at Exhaust. I, that guy is one of my favorite reactionaries. Just absolute freak show. Love him to death. Well, I just like how Conan, uh, Conan is anti-wind in that movie. Crom yes. laughs at the four winds. Four winds, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. So.